begin this morning by asking you if you've ever been offered a deal that seemed too good to be true. Maybe uh, that was a timeshare for you that you got suckered into and you're still trying to find a way out of. I remember getting a a cold call uh, that promised if I took a 15-minute survey, I would win a free cruise for two people to the Bahamas. But you've always got to read the fine print, right? Uh, Back in February, I was grabbing lunch with Luke Worth, and we were both sort of oblivious to the fact that it was Valentine's Day. We were standing in this long line at Qdoba, and we noticed the sign ahead of us advertising free burritos. And we thought, that's cool. And it wasn't until we got to the front of the line and we could read the fine print below. It said, free burrito with purchase of additional entree and a Valentine's Day kiss. And we watched the couple in line in front of us smile and kiss each other for the cashier. And Luke and I turned and looked at each other. And I'll leave the rest to your imaginations. No, the, the cashier was gracious to us. She let us just simply blow her a kiss instead, which we figured was biblical. The Bible says to greet one another with a holy kiss. Uh, But speaking of grace, we are continuing our study this morning through the book of Genesis, and I've been driving home this recurring pattern of God graciously providing for humanity while in our sin we continue to mess things up, and yet time and time again, God responds with even more grace, and we're going to see him do it again this morning, but this time in today's text, this deal truly seems to be too good to be true. It has got to leave Noah wondering, okay, God, what's the catch? The Noahic covenant. But first, let's quickly recap. All of us, Adam and Eve, you and me, we have all, uh, we have basically four relationships, four core relationships that define our existence. There is my relationship to myself, my relationship with others, my relationship to the world around me, and most importantly, my relationship with God. Now, I want you to notice how each of those plays out in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 with God's original, very good design of things in the Garden of Eden. We hear that Adam and Eve were naked and not ashamed. They're you know, had no shame. That was their relationship to their, their selves, their, their bodies, their souls. Uh, they were one flesh, perfect to become one flesh unity. That was their one another relationship. Uh, in regard to the relationship to the world, they were told to have dominion over creation. Um, and you, you get this vision of the animals just you know, parading in front of Adam, and there was this symbiotic relationship. And then finally, in the relationship with God, we hear that God blessed them. Now, All of that changed in an instant in chapter 3. As a result of Adam and Eve's sin, a fall has now occurred that has forever cursed each of those four relationships for all of us as well. Subsequent humanity, we hear, they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths in chapter 3. And now we all experience guilt and shame. And their relationship with others, we we hear the curse, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you, interrelational strife and animosity. We hear uh, their relationship to the world, cursed is the ground because of you, thorns and thistles, natural disasters till this day. And saddest of all, we hear the man and his wife 
hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. And in our sin, we've been trying to hide ever since. Then we traced the continued downward spiral throughout chapters 4 through 6, the fallout. Remember the the one-verse summary of the situation in chapter 6, verse 5. We hear, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, humanity's total depravity. And yet, the flood last week from chapters 6 through 8 was not only an act of justice by God, but we hear Noah found favor, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And the flood is a powerful reminder then of God's gracious offer of mercy to us as well. Like us, Noah was a sinner, but God in his mercy determined through him to rescue humankind. Now, quick word before we dive in about the title, the Noahic Covenant and Common Grace. The Noahic Covenant just means this is God's covenant with Noah. And we will return to the idea of covenant more later, but for now, let's at least define it. A covenant is a promise. It is a binding promise, an unbreakable pact between two parties. Covenant is arguably the most important theme in all of Scripture. It was the very foundational of interpersonal relationships in the ancient world, but the concept has lost much of its weight and significance in our day today, because today businesses enter into contracts. They write all sorts of contingency clauses in the event that one or both parties should ever decide to back out, to break the contract. The closest thing we still have in our day is the marriage covenant, till death do us part, but even half of our marriages end in divorce today. But when God makes a promise, he keeps his word. And in Genesis chapter 9 this morning, we witness the very first covenant in human history between God and Noah. And in this covenant, God pledges four things to Noah. God vows to redeem each of our four basic relationships that have been marred by the effects of sin and the fall. Four examples of what we might call common grace. God's common grace is just that. It is grace, God's undeserved favor, that is common. It is shared by all people. It's universal. Jesus observes this in Matthew 5, 45, that God makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. The most faithful Christian and the most godless heathen are both blessed by the same beautiful sunset, with air in their lungs, with food in their bellies, with work for their hands, with passion in their hearts. God gives good gifts in abundance to all people because he's good. And his covenant with Noah here in Genesis 8 and 9 is the bedrock for it, for God's common grace. And so, Would you, uh, with me, wherever you are there at home, as you're able, stand out of respect for the reading of God's word together from Genesis chapter 8, verse 20. We'll read through chapter 9, verse 17. I'll be reading from the ESV, and we'll have uh, slides on the screen in front of you if you want to follow along, if you don't have a Bible there at home. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. 
And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hands they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh." When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. It is good. It is an even better gift than the common graces that all are blessed with. God, your word tells us that we don't live on bread alone, the common grace of food, the air in our lungs, uh, the, the, the glories of creation, the, the common graces that you've blessed us with, they're not enough. We don't live on that enough. We, we need to live on every word that comes from above, from you. God, help us this morning to cherish your word, the special revelation of your word in the same ways, uh, to desire it, to hunger for uh, your word. And God, would you fill us as we as we chew on it together this morning, would you use it to nourish our souls, uh, to bless us in a way that even common grace can't? Would you use your word to bless us and to change us, to transform us more into the image and likeness of your Son for our, our goodness? We pray this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.
Now, the most important verse in this whole passage is chapter 8, verse 21. And we're going to start with it and we're going to end with it today. Now, for starters, we note the phrase, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now, that is almost identical to the phrase we heard back in chapter 6, verse 5. Every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. The very reason that God sent the flood in the first place. See, sometimes you'll hear people explain that, and, I, and I've been myself guilty of this in the past, explain that the flood was God's cleansing of the world of sin. That sin had gotten so bad by the point of Genesis chapter 6 that God just hit the reset button. A fresh start, a clean slate. But according to Genesis chapter 8, verse 21, if that was God's intention, then he failed. Because first thing off the boat, we hear the intention of man's heart is still evil from his youth. God's saying this about presumably Noah and the other seven members of his family here. Noah was not Eve's long-awaited, curse-breaking, sin-bearing, serpent-stomping offspring that had been promised in Genesis 3.15. The flood did not cure humanity's sin problem. You and I are living proof of that. Anyone at home, not a sinner. Didn't cure sin, no. God's purpose in sending the flood was not to eradicate sin, but rather to reveal both God's just punishment of it as well as his merciful offer of rescue from it. That's what we saw last week. But we need to understand right up front that God does not bless humanity with this great covenant here in chapter 9 because of our goodness. Again, that would undercut the very idea, definition of grace, of undeserved favor. No, God makes it clear here that man is still sinful, evil from his youth, and yet God says, not because of you, but in spite of you, I'm going to bless you. And what is God's blessing? Four things, four common graces that we will unpack here. Number one, God blesses our relationship with the world around us. We call that creation or recreation, as it were. Because the flood reshaped the entire landscape of the earth. Many think uh, this is the point at which Pangaea, the supercontinent that once contained all of Earth's landmass, uh, scientists tell us, broke apart into the seven continents that we know today, separated by four, ocean, uh, four oceans. Noah stepped off the ark one year and ten days after boarding it to a very different world, to a recreated world. And in like manner, God graciously reshaped humanity's relationship to that world as well. Remember back in Genesis 3, God had cursed the ground. He said, in pain, Adam would eat of it all the days of his life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Adam was cursed to be a vegetarian. Can you imagine anything worse? And then in chapter 4, Cain further cursed the earth by polluting it with the blood of his brother Abel. God said, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. See, here's the point. 
our sin doesn't just result in our fall, in humanity's fall. Paul explains in Romans 8 that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, that creation itself will one day be set free from its bondage to corruption. Our sin has corrupted all of creation. Tornadoes and earthquakes, coronavirus and murder hornets. It's all our fault. It's all a result of our sin. We are to blame, all of us. And in God's eyes, our sin and the earth's stain are integrally intertwined. But now, here in Genesis chapter 8, turning point... In the story, God promises, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I've done while the earth remains. Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Now, we need to note about that blessing that the curse of Genesis 3 is is still in effect as well, right? The curse is not totally undone here. We still deal with viruses and hornets, with weeds in our flower beds. But what God does is he puts a limit here on the effect of the curse. And he promises never again to destroy the entire earth until he does so in the last days when Christ is going to return to recreate all things, the new heaven and the new earth, like we hear about in 2 Peter chapter 3. The world that then existed was deluged with water and perished with Noah. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist, our current today or in the future, are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment. The heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. But God says here in Genesis, until that day, I promise to bless you with my common grace gift of this glorious creation. Psalm 19 exclaims, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Their voice goes out through all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. God's fingerprints are everywhere. It truly is a gorgeous world and universe that he's given us. May we not take it for granted, friends. I hope you're getting extra opportunities right now to take advantage even during this quarantine. Have we ever had a spring in St. Louis that has been this beautiful, this many sunny days in the 70s? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Get out. Enjoy it. If it's nice now, you can push pause and go worship God in creation and come back and watch the rest of the sermon tonight when it's dark. This is God's gift to you, to all people. Consider also in chapter 9, verses 2 through 3. God says, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, all the fish in the sea. Into your hand they're delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall now be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So two additional common graces in creation we get there. Number one, do you realize that if the lions and the tigers and the bears, oh my, if God hadn't put the fear and the dread of us in them, there wouldn't have been an us to speak of for very long. Remember, there are eight humans 
on the earth at this point. Two lions, two tigers, two bears, two wolves, two elephants, two hippos. You start doing the math. It, it does not add up in our favor Right? We're talking the days before tranquilizers, no guns, no knives. I'm guessing that Noah would be relying on a sharp stick to defend himself. And so God graciously gives him an even better defense here in creation. Fear. puts the fear of man in animals. But God goes even beyond that and says, not just defense, but offense. In verse 3, I now bless you to go out and hunt them for food. I give you animals for food now, for the first time. You want to talk about common grace. Genesis 9-3 paves the way for the Chick-fil-A spicy chicken sandwich. For the Ruth's Chris filet mignon. For my father-in-law's cedar plank salmon. God is so gracious, he can even make fish taste good. But you don't get any of that until after the flood. Can't you, can't you just imagine Noah, who's been eating nothing but plants for 600 years, mind you, tasting his first bite of steak and thinking to himself, yep, the flood was totally worth it. I would t- I, I'd do it all over again to eat steak. Number two, God blesses our relationship with others. We call this community, right? Once Cursed with enmity and strife in chapter 3, and we saw that play out graphically in chapters 4 through 6 with Cain, with Lamech, with the Nephilim. But here, once again, God offers humanity a chance at renewed community. He restores right relationship between people. In fact, what God does here is he repeats his original command, the very first mandate that God had decreed back in chapter 1, he repeats here verbatim three times for emphasis. In chapter 8, verse 17, God commands it of the animals. And then here again in chapter 9, verses 1 and 7, God says twice to Noah and to humanity, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Because as we celebrated back in chapter 1, our God is a God of life. He himself created life. And then he goes beyond that and he gave us the ability to recreate life, to procreate. God didn't just bless us with other people to keep us company. He actually blessed us with the amazing privilege of actually helping make those people. The gift of family that we celebrate today on Mother's Day. We can produce kids and grandkids and fill not just the earth, but fill our homes with joy. And as if that weren't blessing enough, not only does God give us the opportunity to be fruitful and multiply, but we get to have fun doing it. Right? I mean, do you realize God could have made sex boring? Like he could have made sex no different from brushing your teeth. But he doesn't because that's not the kind of God we serve. He is good. He's so good to us. John 10.10, he says he wants us to have life to the fullest. By the way, if you've got kids watching with you this morning, and this is the first they're hearing about, the proverbial birds and the bees, and you need to pause the sermon right now and have that conversation, my philosophy is better that they hear it here than anywhere else. 
I'd rather them hear it from the church, from their pastor, than from the kids at school. So have the talk, parents, by all means. Now, I want to take just a minute on this point to be sensitive to those of you who, like my wife and I, have struggled with infertility, for whom this commandment to be fruitful and multiply stings, it hurts. Those of you who have lost a child, those who don't enjoy God's gift of physical intimacy, perhaps some trauma from your past has robbed you of the joy of sex, or maybe you can't enjoy it because you're still single, not by choice. I know we've got some West Hillians listening to God's blessing of community this morning while you're stuck there at home by yourself in quarantine. Some of y'all may not have had a genuine human-to-human, in-person interaction in months now. And Listen, to all of you, I would just simply say, I get it. I, I see you. I hear you. I feel for you. Is your pastor. Sometimes common grace feels more common to other people than it does to us. And the reality is we are all still living under both the curse of sin and the blessing of God's grace simultaneously these days. The curse of sin has not yet finally been broken, completely eradicated, just as creation still awaits its final redemption, so too does community. And so without trivializing or minimizing your hurt, let me just offer you this promise of God this morning as hope that you can cling to in the midst of your present trials. This light and momentary affliction is preparing you for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. When you and I experience one day true community, perfect communion with the almighty God of the universe in heaven for the rest of eternity. Even in the here and now, as we saw in Genesis 1, we really have been made in God's Trinitarian image for relationship with others. We really do need each other. And I think we've all realized just how true that is, especially, especially in these socially isolated days. Sometimes you, they say you, you don't know what you've got until it's gone, right? I know I miss you all deeply. And um, honestly, it's been paradoxically just encouraging for me as I continue to call many of you all and check in on how you're doing. And I hear how much you miss each other as well. That's encouraging. That's how we're wired. I had a pastor friend try and tell me the other day that this virus is going to be like a blockbuster versus Netflix moment in the history of the church that churches are going to just start shifting exclusively online after this. And I said, clearly you have never been at West Hills. He's, he's wrong. He's just dead wrong. Anyone who thinks that the church can be long-term an online thing clearly does not appreciate the extent to which God has wired us and gifted us with community, true community. Number three, God blesses us 
and our relationship with ourselves through our conscience. You can look back with me in verses 4, 5, and 6 of chapter 9. We hear, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning, God says. From every beast I will require it, and from man, and from his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. What's going on there? Well, in short, this is God emphasizing the sanctity of human life. Not just human life, all life. All life is sacred, even animal life. That's the whole idea behind sacrifice in the Old Testament. Furry lives matter. If they didn't, animal sacrifice would be meaningless. See, God gives us our lives to be used for his glory, to be given back to him in wholehearted worship and devotion. But in our sin, we have failed to do that. We hold part of our life back for ourselves. And so a life debt now exists, the gap between the life we owe God and the life we've actually given him. And so God says in Leviticus 17, 11, the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. And if animal life is that sacred, that it could, under the Old Testament law, make atonement for our souls, how much more sacred is human life? Remember, when Cain, the first murderer, back in chapter 4, asked God, Am I my brother's keeper? God essentially answers him here in chapter 9. It says, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Yes, Cain. Yes, we are all responsible not only for not killing one another, but for helping preserve the lives of our fellow men as well. This really serves as the basis for all of the horizontal person-to-person commandments that we find in Scripture. Not just do not murder, but our care for the poor, for the widow, for the orphan, the sojourner, love your neighbor as yourself. All of it is about protecting and nurturing life in others because all life is sacred, made in God's image. So much so that in verse 6, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Formerly God had marked Cain and forbid anyone from killing him, or anyone. God alone was supposed to execute justice. But now, as a common grace, God, to all people, gives us our conscience as a moral guide and he institutes human governance and the human execution of justice as a check and balance on our sinful fallen natures. Genesis 9-6 is the foundation for the death penalty that we find all throughout the rest of the Bible and still found in our country's legal system today. You take someone else's life and you forfeit your own right to life. That's how serious God takes the sacredness of human life. And in our consciences, they bear witness to this fact. We all innately know how horrific something like murder is. We want murderers to be punished. Our conscience convicts us of that. But here's the thing. 
then we start to extrapolate from that. And we realize that all sin is an affront to God. A holy, perfect God. Our consciences should convict us of our own sin. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, you have heard it said in the days of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And see, that's the issue with all of these wonderful common grace gifts of God is that in the end, in the absence of saving grace, there's common grace universal to all people and then there's saving grace available only through Jesus. In the absence of saving grace, then then creation, community, conscience, they all actually just end up condemning us even more. The Apostle Paul says that of our conscience in Romans chapter 2, he says, When Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse them. In other words, God has given everyone a conscience, an innate sense of right from wrong, the ability to know that we are sinners in need of a Savior, such that none will be excused, will have an excuse When they stand in judgment before the Lord, Paul says the same thing about creation. Just one chapter earlier in Romans, what can be known about God is plain to all because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Everyone knows, friends, everyone knows deep down that there is a God. That that is self-evident. The question is, will you honor him as such? Will you worship him as such? Will you lay down your pride, your desire to control your own life and surrender to him as God? as Lord and as Savior? That's the question. Here's where common grace comes in. Number four, common grace number four is covenant. God blesses our relationship with him through covenant. This is so important and I'm running down on my time now, but fortunately this is such a central theme of scripture that we're going to have more time to discuss it in greater depth here in just a few weeks when we study the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapters 15 and 17. Then there's the Mosaic covenant in Exodus 19 through 24. There's the priestly covenant in Numbers 25. There's the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7. And finally, the new covenant prophesied in Jeremiah 31 and fulfilled in the New Testament. But Listen, God's covenant with Noah here is a crucial one. The word covenant, berit, is repeated seven times in verses 8 through 17 here for emphasis. Covenant is crucial, and God's covenant with Noah is unique. It is distinct from the other four covenants we find 
in the Old Testament in at least three ways. Number one, this covenant is universal. The Abrahamic covenant is just for the people of Israel. The priestly covenant is, you guessed it, just for the Israelite priests. But in verses 9 and 10 here, God says, with Noah, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you. It is for every beast of the earth. It's for everyone and not just everyone, everything. Even the animals get blessed with common grace, with the sun shining, with the, the rain falling. I don't know that they have consciences, but God blesses everything with common grace with this promise that he'll never destroy the earth again. That's good news for all of us. Number two, the Noahic covenant is unilateral. It is one-sided. The Mosaic covenant is bilateral, two-sided. God says to Moses, if you obey my commands, then you will be my treasured possession among all peoples, but not here with Noah. Not so. There's no if-then clause There's no quid pro quo, if you will, in Genesis 9. God simply says, I, I establish my covenant with you, Noah. And the sign of his covenant, the rainbow, I think further highlights this fact. Did you know that it's scientifically impossible to walk underneath a rainbow? It is scientifically impossible to find the end of a rainbow. That's why we can speculate about how much gold leprechauns are stashing there, because we'll never know. You'll never be able to find it. I, it's, it's, it's like God is reminding us of the fact that you can't even come, you play no part in this covenant. It is totally my doing, God says. And two other quick observations about the rainbow. Notice, number one, the phrase in verse 13. The Hebrew here reads, I have hung my bow in the clouds. The word for bow there in Hebrew is the same word for the weapon, like a bow and arrows. So every time you see a rainbow in the sky, that is God symbolically reminding himself and reminding you of his conscious decision in the wake of the flood, to lay down his weapon, to hang up his bow, and not to carry out his righteous war against sin that would otherwise result in our utter extinction and annihilation. That is good news, friends. Do you think about that when you see a rainbow? Talk about common grace. And the second thing we ought to remember every time we see rain is that not only does God promise not to wipe us off the face of the planet, he actually redeems the very weapon he used to almost do it in the first place. The rains, the floods, God now uses rain for our good. The very thing that God used to nearly destroy the world, now he uses as perhaps our most vital, necessary blessing, provision, rain to water our crops. 90% of our bodies or whatever, water to give life to the earth. God is redemptive. He's so good. His covenant is universal, it's unilateral, and it is unconditional. Verse 16 says, when the bow is in the clouds, God says, I will see it and remember the 
everlasting covenant between me and you. There is nothing that you or I or any other living creature could ever do now to revoke God's promise of blessing here. And praise God for that because you can rest assured if there was a way to mess it up, you and I would find it and we'd do it. They say, if an offer seems too good to be true, it probably is. While that may be true with everyone else in your life, with your cable provider, your cell phone carrier, with that get-rich-quick scheme, it is not so with God, friends. There is no fine print in his covenant here this morning. But here's what we do need to understand about this covenant in closing. Common grace is a beautiful thing. But as the book of Romans just told us, it is not enough. No one has ever seen a beautiful sunset, a rainbow. No one has ever experienced the common grace love and affection of a fellow human being. No one has ever felt the pinch of their conscience, the conviction of sin. And and with any of that, no one has ever done that and been saved by it. The very best you can hope for from common grace is a recognition of your need for a Savior, of your sin. But no one has ever been saved by common grace. Remember I told you that chapter 8, verse 21 was the most important verse of the passage. Why is that? Well, what instigated this amazing, too-good-to-be-true covenant in the first place? The covenant itself is unconditional and unilateral, but what prompted God's gracious promise here? If you look back, we read, Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird, and he offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, then the Lord said in his heart, and friends, You need to recognize today that left on your own, try your very hardest, and the best offering, if you're a righteous and blameless man like Noah, not perfect, but if you're like as righteous as Noah, right? The scribes and the Pharisees, the very best offering that you can bring before God can only ever inspire him to common grace. And he's already promised that anyway. (laughs) I mean, Noah secured that for us. So hear the good news this morning that there is a new and better covenant available to you. It is also universal to the extent that all have at least been invited Scripture says God desires that none should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It is unilateral in that Jesus Christ has done what only he could do, what you and I could never do, failed to do. We come empty-handed to the table. We contribute nothing to our own salvation. Jesus plus anything equals nothing, and Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But the new covenant is not unconditional. 
There are two and only two vital conditions placed on God's new covenant made available through Jesus. And Jesus gives it to us himself in Mark 1.15. He says, repent and believe in the gospel. Repent, turn from your sin and recognize that you cannot do it on your own. You cannot measure up. You need a savior desperately. And number two, believe, trust Jesus to be that savior for you. So I ask you this morning, friends, will you do it? Repent and believe and accept his gracious offer, not just of common grace, but of God's special saving grace made available to you by Jesus Christ today.